Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now. I was privileged to speak a couple times this past weekend at a women's conference here in Boulder, Colorado. One of my messages centered around the theme of the preeminence of the cross over our current cultural context. Because we talk about culture here on all things, and because I believe the word of God teaches us that nothing falls outside of the domain of the cross, I wanted to share that message with you here and now. It's longer than a typical all things episode, but it's a chance for us to think together about how the cross can and must be applied to all things. Let's listen in. The Washington Post came out with an article a couple years ago highlighting this trend. Millennials are the first generation to say that they think they're going to be worse off than their parents. So typically generations think we're moving towards progress where there's this like automatic optimism, like things are getting better. But millennials are the first generation to say, actually things are going to be worse. Things are going to be worse for me than they were for my mom and dad. And um, typically the fear is something of a catastrophic nature, like a global economic recession or a pandemic virus of some kind that wipes out a lot of people, or maybe climate change. There's just this sense among millennials, which a lot of you in here are, I missed the cutoff by three years, Generation X. But there's this um, sense that things are getting worse and it's not going to go well for you. Suicide in the United States is at an all-time high. You may know that. It's kind of in the news a lot. In fact, the rate for girls ages 10 through 14 has tripled since 1999. We're seeing this a ton in Kirker. I don't know about where you guys are from, but our public high schools endure at least one, if not several, suicides every single year. So we've got this, like, hopelessness epidemic happening in our communities. In fact, The Atlantic just ran an article last week saying we're in a happiness recession. There's a recession of happiness in our nation. And so as a people, as Americans, as citizens of this country, I think we're all clamoring, like, what are we going to do about this? What's going to happen? We all want to come up with a solution. Like, there's got to be some new law, some new legislation. Why isn't the government doing something about it? Or there needs to be a, a movement back to something or forward to something. We're all, we're looking for, we're clamoring for something to make it better. It's in all of us to want that. We don't want to hurt. We don't want our friends and family hurting. We don't want our neighbors hurting. It's in us. We're driven to, to find an answer. And it can feel like, like, even if you just went out to Pearl Street for lunch, it can feel like there's a thousand ways, a thousand ideas out there for how we're going to make everything better. There's bumper stickers um, throughout Boulder, there's signs, there's protests, there's storefronts that have things hanging in the window. It feels like the ideas that Americans are bringing to the table, like it's an endless buffet of options. Well, I'm a student of culture, I have a background in anthropology, and what is really interesting is there are actually only three worldviews. All those ideas, that endless buffet, all the bumper stickers really fit into three main categories. The first one is Eastern religion. So lots of smaller ideas, smaller um, belief systems in that, but inside all of Eastern religion, the idea is that the world is sort of an illusion. Everything is not real. What you're feeling, what you're experiencing isn't actually reality. You need to transcend it. 
You need, your mind needs to rise above it to achieve nirvana, to achieve happiness. You need to go beyond it. None of this is real. Of course, that's hard to live with because it feels real, right? Your pain feels quite real. So the second worldview category is atheism or secularism. And this is what we're seeing definitely on the rise in the United States and our, in our, um, amongst our neighbors, especially white, affluent, atheism, secularism is up. And this is really do-it-yourself spirituality. It's like you figure out what the truth is. You look within you, and you determine what is true for you. And if it's wildly different from what is true for me, that's okay. Not a problem. We're all just going to find our own truth, invent our own truth, create it, and then we're going to live by it. But that's hard to live by too, isn't it? Because the problem is, it's only as good as you are. It's only as strong and as powerful as you are. So when you lose your job, or when you get the cancer diagnosis, or when climate change becomes a big problem, or when the pandemic virus hits, or when you just have the flu, you have nothing outside of yourself to reach for. You have nothing that's more powerful than you are. And so we're finding that atheism and secularism is just crushing. And I think that's a large part why we have this happiness recession, why we're seeing suicide is up, why we're seeing millennials feel hopeless about their futures is because they're realizing this thing that I've got inside of me isn't big enough. It's not strong enough. I can't really hold on to this for hope for my future. So the third worldview, third, third major worldview is Judeo-Christianity. It's where we all, most I'm guessing everybody in here lands, and that is the belief that there is a God. There is a maker. There is a creator. He, there is something, someone out there who put everything into place, and he still reigns. He's still the author of life. So here in the States, we find that to be passe. We're like, oh, that Christianity? That's bigoted. That's old-fashioned. It's on the wrong side of history. You know, we sort of pat the Bible on its head and say, well, it was good for back then, but we've evolved beyond that. We're past that, so as Christians, sometimes I think we walk around ashamed or embarrassed or like keep it hidden, keep it, keep it a secret because nobody out there believes it. Well, on a global scale, what's amazing is that Christianity is exploding. I don't know if you guys know this, but Christianity is really the only truly worldwide religion. This blows my mind, and it makes me so excited. Christianity is the only faith that is actually all over the globe. So Islam is concentrated in Southeast Asia, the Middle East, and North Africa. It is not all over the globe. Hinduism is largely concentrated in India. Shintoism, Buddhism, faiths like this are mostly just in Asia. But Christianity is found everywhere. I've got some statistics I want to share with you. 25% of Christians are found in Europe. 25% are found in Central and South America. 22% in Africa. 15% in Asia, and that's the place that's fastest growing. And 12% in North America. This is all from Pew Research. So Christianity is everywhere. It's truly global, and it's the only faith like that. Not only that, but it's growing. Right now on the globe, a greater percentage of our population is Christian than ever before. A greater percentage. More people are Christians now than ever in the history of the world. By percentage. Not just by numbers, but by percentage. 50,000 people come to faith every single day. 
50,000 people across the globe are born again every day. That means you and I get 19 million new brothers and sisters every year. Right? This is exciting. So the world knows we have a creator. The world is waking up to the reality that we have an author that he created us, that he made us. He's our author and our redeemer. This is well known around the world. While it feels like it's shrinking in the United States, the world knows we share a creator. You and I have brothers and sisters all over the globe. We've got siblings in Christ in Estonia, Latvia, Micronesia, Kosovo, Nicaragua, Ecuador, Mongolia, the list goes on. Our faith is a global faith, and that is because we share our father. We share our father in heaven, and his spirit is in his people all over the globe. They are waking up to it, and there's a global awakening happening, even if it doesn't feel like it in Boulder, Colorado. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. The earth is the Lord's. All people are his. He is our creator. He is our maker. So, so then... Therefore, if we have a creator, if we have a maker, if you and I were created on purpose, for a purpose, then we have to ask our creator, what are we here for? What are we supposed to be doing? What do you have, God, for this moment in history, for this moment in our communities where suicide has tripled? What do you have for the millennials, Lord, who say things are going to get worse? Doom is coming. How would you have us, God, our creator, our maker, how would you have us respond to this? How then shall we live in this moment in time? Well, we're going to turn to his word for that answer. As I do that, pray with me. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 22. But first, let me pray. Lord God, we do worship you and honor you and bow down before you as our creator and as our king. God, I'm asking you now to, by the power of your spirit, Lord, to show us what it is you have for us in this moment. Lord, renew our minds, transform us according to your word, by the power of your spirit and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 22. I am going to read verses 34 through 39. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So these are the two greatest commandments. Love God and love neighbor. They're a repetition of the Old Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's a repetition of Deuteronomy chapter 6, as well as a number of other places in the law. So this is not new. Jesus isn't like, well, let me come up with some new ideas for you now. No, he is repeating the heart of the Old Testament. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So he's saying, love God with your whole being. Not like, well, there's one way to love with your head, there's one way to love with your body, there's one way to love with... No, the point is love God wholly and fully. Be just all in on your love for God. And the order here of the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment actually 
really matters. Love God first, and then love neighbor second. That really is the pattern of the New Testament. That is the pattern of what we see in all of the epistles and the apostles' writing. We see this pattern where they first exalt Jesus. They first exalt the gospel. They first say, remember this about God. Remember this about his character. And they rehearse and remind their readers of all the goodness and the good things about our God. And then they say, therefore, live like this. If you read any of the epistles, you're going to see that pattern. You're going to see the exaltation of God. Then, so therefore, because of that great love, because you are compelled and compelled and moved by the love that God has for you and you love him back, therefore, love like this. Never is the order switched. Never is it like, well, love your neighbor and do all the good works and then maybe God will love you. The order is never mixed. We are first reminded of his great love for us and we're compelled by that and we are moved by that. So these two... um, for these two greatest commandments are really our marching orders as believers. They're like, this. so this is it. This is where the rubber meets the road for you and me, Christians in 2019. This is what we are supposed to be doing. Jesus says, love God and love your neighbors. So everything that's coming at us, every social ill that's out there, and every heartache that is in here and in your home, we are to respond to it in these two ways, by loving God and loving our neighbor. So I want to leave us today, I want us to be sent out from this conference with three ways, three ways to apply the two greatest commandments. Because here is what is the great scandal of the American church in 2019. Here's the scandal. 75% of Americans say they are Christians. Now I know what you just thought, because I thought it too. Well, people say they're Christians, but they're not. I know, I know, that is for sure true. But 75% of Americans say they're Christians. Now hear this. 30% of Americans go to church regularly, every week. 30%. You guys, that is huge. Every third household is going to church. Every third student, every third coworker, every third apartment is going to church. That is huge. Where I have lived, nobody goes to church. In Japan and the Czech Republic, no one's going. Very few. Less than one half of one percent. That's not even one person out of a hundred is going to church. And we've got 30 people out of 100 in our country going to church. So the great scandal is, why isn't it making a big difference? Why aren't we a bigger influence on our neighbors? Why aren't we a bigger influence in this country? Why isn't it working? Why are 30% of us going to church and yet suicide has tripled? That's the scandal of our age. And Jesus responds by saying, you are to love God and you are to love neighbor. So I want to put... I'm going to give you three things to take with you, just three ways to apply these truths as you are sent out of here. The first one, in terms of applying love God and love neighbor, is pretty obvious. It's love God. But to love God is to love the gospel. We are women who are privileged to have all of Scripture. We have the Old Testament, the New Testament. We have 2,000 years of church history. We have a privileged position to see all of Scripture and see its impact on the world or the potential impact that it is on the world. So to love God from where we're sitting right now means to love the gospel. So my question for you and for me is, do you love it? Are you moved by it? Do you think about how you were dead and God made you alive? 
Do you think about how you were hopeless, condemned, damned to hell, and Jesus rescued you? Do you love that truth? Does it well up within you? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Some of the sweetest words of scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm just going to kind of pick a few things out of, um, I don't want to take up too much time, so pick a few things out of Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10. And you were dead, verse 1 says. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, meaning following the enemy. We were dead. We were walking in our trespasses and we were following the enemy. Verse 3, we were children of wrath, deserving wrath, the wrath that Jesus got on the cross. We were deserving of that. We were the children of that. But then, verse 4, my favorite words in the Bible, I have an article titled this, but God, the best words in the Bible, but God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Do you love that? Does that stir your heart? Does that motivate you? Does that send you out? Philippians chapter 2 says, Jesus left his throne in heaven and put on flesh to walk amongst us and live the perfect life that you could never live and I can never live. And then he died the death that we deserved. And then he rose to life. And then he traded his righteousness with our sin. We got his goodness and he got the sin and the payment for that that we deserved. Do you love that is my question. Do I love that? Is that the treasure of my heart? Is that what compels me and propels me day in and day out? Because that is a beautiful truth. Love God. First application, love God or love the gospel. Second application of the two greatest commandments is grow a gospel flinch. Well, let me explain what that means. I wish I could take credit for that phrase, gospel flinch, but I can't. And I actually don't even know who to credit. My uh, husband was on a conference call with a handful of other Acts 29 pastors, and one of them used it. So was your husband, let me know later so I can start giving credit. <laughs> one of them said it, that as pastors, we need to grow a gospel flinch. Well, my husband and I kind of internalized that, and we've talked about it quite a bit since then. But it's just this idea that things are coming at us all the time, right? Things out there, things in here. We've got global headlines, national headlines, citywide headlines. So the... Um, You know, I just think of Boulder and I think of abortion that's legal at any time. I think of Colorado assisted suicide being legal. I think of all that we're facing in terms of racism and classism and gender dysphoria. And then that's all like maybe out there a little bit, but then we come in here and we're looking at maybe job loss or an unhappy marriage or infidelity or your kid has some kind of chronic illness or you have a chronic illness or whatever. But things are coming at us all the time, right? We are not walking through fields of flowers. We're, we're walking through a minefield. That is life in a fallen world. So when those things come at you, flinch with the gospel rather than ducking and covering and running away or maybe rather than just going at it with all you've got develop a gospel flinch meaning apply the gospel to whatever it is that's coming at you that your reaction your reflex your knee-jerk reaction is the gospel so to understand this a little bit more go with me to colossians chapter one these are my very favorite this is my favorite passage in scripture the preeminence of christ colossians one starting in verse 15 He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Jesus is over all things. The supremacy of Christ is the sufficiency of Christ. Because he is supreme, he is sufficient. So where do you need to grow a gospel flinch in your life? Where do you need to perhaps apply forgiveness because you've been forgiven? Where do you need to love unconditionally because you have been loved unconditionally? Where do you remember, where do you need to remember the invaluable worth of every human, the dignity of every man, woman, and boy and girl, because you and I and he and she were all created in God's image? Where do you need to remember the sovereignty and the goodness of our God? Where do you need to lay down your life for somebody? Because Jesus has already laid down his life for yours. What in your life is not yet subject to the gospel? What have you not responded to with a gospel flinch? So number one, love the gospel. Number two, grow a gospel flinch. The cross truly is a watershed. The cross changes everything. The cross was God's answer for everything, for every problem, for every ill, for every sin, for every dark thing was the cross. So for us, us Christians, we look at the cross and we go, it changes everything. Everything is different because of the cross. There's a Dutch theologian by the name of Abraham Kuyper. He died about 100 years ago. But here's what he said. I love this quote. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence, over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, mine, mine. He says that about you and about everybody else in here and about everything going on in your life. He says, mine. So what have you not handed over? What have you not applied the gospel to in your life? Because you are not your own and I am not my own. We were bought at a price. So the creator of the world, the king of the universe, has something to say about how you respond to your broken marriage, to your failed degree program, to your lost job, to your unmarried pregnant daughter, to your Hindu neighbors. The Lord has something to say. He has something for you in that. As you love him and as you love them, apply the gospel to it. Nothing is outside the domain of the cross of Christ. Third way to apply the two greatest commandments as we go from here is simply this. Trust the power of God in the gospel. Let's say with Paul. This is Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Let's say with Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the power of God, and we sit on it. How dare you and I hoard it or not believe that it is powerful enough? Like, what will they think? And I'm preaching to myself here. 
what will they think? What will my neighbors think when I start to talk about Jesus? What will my friends think? I'll alienate them. I'll embarrass myself. I'm going to ruin it for next time or whatever. But it's the power of God. It's the power of our risen king. He raises dead people to life. That is power. And it's in you and me. And it's the power of salvation for all who believe. Can we trust that? Can we believe that? Can we take God at his word and love him so much and be moved by his love that we then love our neighbor by believing in the power of God for their salvation? Do we believe that? Because it's not your power. And it's not your ability to be savvy. And it's not my perfect timing and the right cookies that I made for the right person that said the right thing the right way. It's the power of God. May we love him. May we apply a gospel flinch to everything. And may we believe that the power of the gospel is enough. The power of God brings dead people to life. It gives blind people sight. It makes paraplegics walk. It brings light into dark places. That power is immeasurable. Do you believe it? Do I believe it? And where do we need to do these things? Where do I need to renew my mind so that I love the gospel? Where do I need to renew my mind so that I apply the gospel to whatever is going on in my life, to whatever headline is out there, to whatever impending doom you as a millennial feel convinced is coming upon you? How might you apply the gospel to that? And then do you trust? Do you believe the power of God is the salvation for the whole world? Because our brothers and sisters are believing it. 19 million a year are believing it all over the globe. And how privileged are we? We've got libraries full of the truth. We've got Bible studies galore. We are in a privileged position to really walk this out, to really walk in the truth, to really believe this. Here is why you and I can do this. I know that it's tempting to go, okay, yeah, Jen's right. I've got to do better. I've got to try harder. I've got to go home. I'm feeling kind of guilty about this. Like, what am I going to do? Let me make my to-do list. And some of that's good. A lot of that's probably from the Lord, and you should probably run with it. (laughs) But here is why we can go from here. Here is why, after sitting in the last 24 hours in this sort of sweet incubator where we remember what is sacred, we have had these talks in this worship, and we remember what is true, We're rededicating ourselves to the love of God, but we're going to be sent out. We're going out from here, leaving this sort of safe space and going back into the world where things are going to be coming at us. Here is why we can believe what is true. Here is why we can apply it. Here is why you can love God and love your neighbor. Because he is on the throne. That's it. He reigns. Even now, our God is on the throne. Turn with me to Revelation. We're going to take a minute in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5, okay? So the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John during the first century when it was hard to be a Christian. You were being murdered for being a Christian, persecuted for being a Christian. He actually got exiled for being a Christian, sent to his own island, said, John, get out of here. Go to Patmos. We don't want you around here anymore. So John went to the island of Patmos where he heard from the Lord, where Jesus gave him all kinds of visions. 
and they're recorded in the book of Revelation. So John, a persecuted Christian himself, writes the book of Revelation to the persecuted church. Okay, So this is by a believer who is down and out to believers who are down and out. That is the context of Revelation. John gets a vision, and in chapter 4 and chapter 5, we see and read about his vision of the throne in heaven. And I'm just, I'm going to be kind of speeding through it, um, grabbing some some verses here and there, but I'm going to start in chapter 4, verse 1. This is John. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Down to verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Then John goes on to describe this throne. It's like covered in jewels. It's not your ordinary throne. Very, very unique. Verse 5 says, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. So we're talking about a very powerful throne. Not your average Renaissance throne, but the throne of God. And John describes in this chapter, there's these elders that are surrounding the throne and they're worshiping God. There's all these creatures surrounding the throne. They've got eyes and wings and the the language is really interesting. We're not going to go into all of that right now, but there's this, John sees this throne in heaven that's got all kinds of jewels and lightning and sounds and power coming out of it. There's elders around it. There's creatures around it and they're all worshiping God. This is God the Father on the throne. They're all worshiping him. Verse um, 8, it says, so he's talking about the creatures. Day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. We see this same language in the Old Testament. Thousands of years ago, Isaiah had the same vision of God on his throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. This is not new and this is not just in the future. This is right now our God is on his throne receiving worship of elders and creatures right now in heaven. Our God is sovereign. Our God reigns. Go down with me just a couple verses. Now it's the elders who fall down before him. They're falling down before God in heaven. They're casting their crowns before him saying, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God is worthy to receive our glory, our honor, and our power because... He is worthy because he is creator. He is maker. By his power, all things exist. All things are subject to him because he is the creator. He is the only one worthy to receive power and glory and honor because he is the sovereign, the one and only sovereign king. Then Jesus comes on the scene in this visit, in this vision. So chapter 5, verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Jesus is the slain lamb in this vision. And now the creatures and the elders all turn their attention to the lamb. They turn from the throne of God, and now they're going to worship the lamb who was slain. Verse 9, They sang a new song. The creatures and elders are singing a new song in this vision. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
They are saying, Jesus, you are worthy because you are our rescuer. You rescued and redeemed us, Jesus. You are worthy because you are our creator. You created us and you made us. And guess what's coming? Verse 10 speaks of the future. This is what's coming. This is the new heaven and the new earth. This is where all of history is heading towards this moment. This is where the train of all of history of mankind is headed here. Get on this train because this is what's happening. Verse 10. You have made them, meaning believers, from every tribe, language, and people, and nation, a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We will reign with our king forever and ever on the new heaven and the new earth. That's where we're going. That's where every headline is headed. That's where every heartache in your life, life, every joy, every sorrow, every high, every low, every event, every instance is headed towards this, the eternal and final consummation of creation, restoration of all things, worship of the slain lamb and our father on their thrones in heaven. I hope you feel the power in these passages. There is so much power in these passages. Our worries compared to this, our concerns, our burdens are teeny tiny when we compare them to the sovereign reign of the king of the world, the king and creator who set every star in its place, who set the universe in motion, who created every person in this room, who created every Japanese person, every Czech person, who knows the number of hair on every person's head, who knows the exact family you were born into, who knows the exact country and city you will live in, church you will go to, neighbors you will have, sisters you will have. He is on his throne. He has been on his throne. He is on his throne, and he will be on his throne. Amen. All things are subject to him. There is so much freedom in that. I hope you feel that. I hope you're just feeling the burdens that you bear fall off of your shoulders right now. You don't have to carry it. He is carrying it. You don't have to be in charge because he is in charge. You don't have to micromanage your world because he's in charge of the whole world. And we're all headed towards this. As you set out to love him and to love your neighbor, you don't have to trust in your goodness. You don't have to trust in your ability. You don't have to trust that you're going to do it just right. These verses are so freeing. Our God is in heaven. Our God reigns in heaven, and he will do as he pleases. The world and all the people in it are his. So go in freedom. Walk in truth. Feel empowered. The power that's on that throne lives in you. That power is inside of you right now, today. When you leave this conference, that power is going with you for whatever it is that God has you has for you. And what he has for us is that we would love our neighbor, that we would be a city on a hill. I hope that power that you see and that freedom that it brings compels you and propels you to go, to cross your street, to cross your dorm hall, to cross your corporate workplace, to cross I don't know what kinds of divides, what kinds of camps, what kinds of spheres God has put you in. But he's put them in you. He's put you in them for his name's sake. Not for yours. Not for your image or for your good name or for you to handle it for your little kingdom. But he's put you in it for his. And you don't have to worry. And you don't have to micromanage because he's on the throne. You can walk in that freedom and go. Go be a bright light, a city on a hill, whether that's here in Boulder or in Parker, or maybe you're hearing from the Lord that he really wants you to go somewhere. And he really has something for you. 
that all of the people groups on the nations who have yet to hear his name, all of the people who are going to languish outside of the gospel because there's no one to tell them, maybe you're hearing that right now. You can go because he's on his throne. You can be empowered by the almighty, all-powerful, good, kind king, the God in heaven who gave up his son for you. You can trust him. That's his character. That's his goodness. You can go and walk in freedom because you already know who he is. Sisters, you and I are plan A, and there's no plan B. We, his redeemed, adopted, beloved children who now live in the kingdom of his beloved son, we're plan A. We're it. Don't hold back out of fear, out of whatever it is that keeps you. But walk in freedom knowing that it is our God who reigns. Our God is in heaven. And it is for your good and the good of your neighbor. And it's for your joy and the joy of your neighbor. And it's for the glory of our risen king forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply his word to what's happening here and now. I appreciate you listening in to this longer version of All Things. We'll be back with our regular length episode next week.